0: Um, So we have three core values we talk about a lot at Redemption Hill. We talk about gracious hospitality, which Pastor Chewy was just encouraging us on. We talk about unified diversity and empowered members. And so I'm going to talk about that at the end tonight, but in the middle of this, we've invited Michael Ware to be with us, in part because of this value that we have of unified diversity. Um, From its beginning, we've worked hard for this, but it's incredible to see how politically diverse Redemption Hill Church is. And that is an area of diversity that I don't hear people talk about in church, but something that I think is terribly needed because the gospel is the thing that can bridge between an increasingly divided nation and it ought to be the place where Christians can come together regardless of political convictions and, and and partisan affiliations. So before COVID hit, when we were still planning to have our annual leadership retreat, we had invited Michael to come and join us. I'm glad he's been able to shift with us and be able to do this tonight. Um, If you don't know Michael at all or his work, just briefly, he is the author of a book called Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. It reflects on his experiences serving in the White House in the Faith-Based Initiatives Office and directing the faith outreach for the 2012 re-election campaign as well. Michael has written in major reports on Christianity in the United States, including articles in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Washington Post, and other major publications, Christianity Today. He's a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, um, and he today serves as the chief strategist and a member of the executive team for the AND campaign, which is the logo we have up on the platform tonight, um, and is the founder of Public Square Strategies LLC. His, um, he and his wife, Melissa, are proud natives of Buffalo, New York, and if you follow him on social media, you'll see that. You'll also see lots of videos and photos of his beautiful daughter, Sirsha and his Italian home cooking. And so um, I first met Michael several years ago. We got together and had lunch at an Indian buffet, and um, I've enjoyed his perspective and respect his voice and he helps me out, he has a newsletter that I recommend. He helps me because I can't keep up with the non-stop fire hose of American politics. I think even those of you who work as staffers have trouble keeping up with everything. And so it helps me as a pastor to be able to get the highlights and hear a Christian perspective on what's happening. Um, And so he's going to speak tonight. He has, I've asked him to speak in two pieces and we'll have a short break in between and also some Q&A afterward. For a Q&A, we are, I mean, everything's going to be very socially distanced tonight, and so he and I will be socially distanced on the platform for that portion, but please text in any questions that you have. All right, will you join me in welcoming Michael Ware?
1: All right, there we go. Uh, It is so great to be with you. You know, there's an incredible storm, uh, storm outside, and, you know, I, uh, as much as I wanted to keep this place clean, and as much as I hate bringing in the rain, uh, it's pervasive, and there's just no avoiding it and it's very hard to keep that outside stuff from coming into the church. Um, So I'm gonna talk about politics tonight. Um, I'm so glad I have uh, time to speak with you over sort of two settings. First, I'm gonna speak more generally about Christianity and politics, and then after the break, I wanna talk more specifically about the church and a problem of disintegration that I think is happening, um, that we, as folks people for Christ, as those in with responsibility for congregants, need to be thinking carefully about. Um, the last thing, last sort of introductory thing I'll say is um, I can't tell you how seriously I take an opportunity like this. Um, uh, it's uh you know it, it's something else to know that you're sort of parachuting into a, a church that has a life of its own, and I will be here and I will speak for a couple hours and I will leave and Bill's going to have to be responsible for whatever happens. (laughs) And you all are going to have to be responsible for whatever happens. And so I just hope that whatever I say that is useful, that your hearts are open for it, and that um, whatever I have to say that uh, is uh, not helpful, uh, A, that God will show me that so that I stop saying it, uh, and then B, that it will just not stay uh, in your minds at all. Um, might be helpful since we're spending a decent amount of time together, let, let me give you a, just a bit of context on my background, how I ended up working in politics and Christian leadership. Uh, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, uh, in the Rust Belt, son of a single mother who worked multiple jobs to keep our family afloat, uh, another thing you'll know about me if you follow me on Twitter, uh, big Italian family, and I talk about being Italian. uh, I was going to say more than I should, but I feel like it's just the right amount. (laughs) Um, I was very close to my grandfather growing up. My grandfather wasn't a particularly partisan person, uh, but he was civically minded. He served in World War II. When he came back, he was the kind of person who people seemed to go to for their problems. He was very civically involved, and I think that rubbed off on me, and so I was interested in civics from a really young age. Uh, Growing up, my family was not particularly religious. Uh, In Buffalo, it seemed as if sort of everyone was born Catholic, and it was a faith of kind of rituals and rhythms that gave structure to the weeks and years. Uh, I asked my mother about this, uh, about the role of faith uh, in sort of our family and growing up. Uh, when I was writing my first book, and she uh, told me religion was, quote, like brushing your teeth in the morning, you just did it, which is, you know, a rousing call to faith uh, from my mother. <laughs> the, uh, the millennial generation is the first to grow up uh, in a time when religious skepticism is pervasive and accepted in mainstream American culture. And like many of my peers, I internalized messages about religion that I did not really understand myself. I was convinced the Bible was self-contradictory, though I had never read it. I viewed religion as a crutch without interrogating the actual experiences of religious people. I believed religion was anti-intellectual without considering the brilliance of the religious people I knew or the fact that many of the great intellectuals of human history were themselves religious. In the same way that many in previous generations considered themselves to be Christian because it was reinforced by their peers and culture, I assumed God was unknowable and irrelevant if he existed at all. And yet, I could not escape God. This God who did not exist was everywhere. Um, Just briefly, I... um, So my uh, sister was... uh, became a Christian a few years before I did. So spoiler alert, became a Christian. Um, she, uh, she, she encountered, uh, she worked at our local, a local grocery store where I would work at and everybody else in Buffalo would work at. Um, and she encountered a young married couple there that um, she was drawn to. She saw how loving they were with one another, way that they interacted with each other uh, in the workplace, and she just sort of kind of sidled up next to them, and they kind of welcomed her in, and very much the kind of Christian hospitality that you spoke of um, earlier, uh, and they invited her to go to church, and soon I had an evangelist in the room next, next to mine who would not leave me alone. Um, uh, I remember her, uh, at one point, taking her big, inefficient Bible, uh, the, the kind that you get when you first become a Christian, and then you realize, oh, I need to get, like, one I could actually use. Uh, I wanted, like, my official one that weighed 20 pounds, and then I want the one that I can use. Uh, I remember her trying to walk me down Roman's Road, and I, uh, I stood up, and I just chucked the Bible at her. Um, so that was, a, that was the state of my faith walk at the time. Um, She invited me to go to her youth group, and I went there. I hated it. Um, I didn't find them to be too hospitable. Uh, They were using language I didn't understand. Um, Someone who was closer to my age but a friend of my sister um, walked up to me, knew I wasn't a Christian. She said, Michael, so glad you're here. Uh, By the way, I was wondering what's your favorite book of the Bible, and I thought that's a really weird way to start, but these are weird people, so I'll just go with it. Before I could, of course, I didn't have a favorite book of the Bible. Before I could answer, she goes, uh, well, mine's Hezekiah. And uh, I, I thought, okay, I'll roll with this. I said, you know, what a coincidence. That's mine, too. We're like soulmates. Um, it, it wasn't until years later I found out there is no book of Hezekiah, and I thought that is the meanest possible thing that a person could do um, to someone who is attending a youth group for the first time. Um, On my my way out of the youth group, a volunteer uh, was handing out tracts of Romans, just Romans, no commentary, no anything. He was standing next to the garbage can, so I was sanctified enough at the time not to throw it out right in front of his face. Uh, I took it home, uh, read it, and it changed my life. Um, My sister was dropping me off from school three days later, and I told her I'd given my life to Christ. Um... Initially, I thought, well, this means I need to go to seminary, become a pastor, because I just wanted to, again, you get the big Bible, and then you just want to do, like, the most official Christian thing that you could think of doing, and thankfully, I had a pastor back home who was like, Michael, look around, you know, there are Christians who aren't pastors, and I thought that was a keen observation, (laughs) Um, and so this vocational question that's guided my life since I was about 15, 16 has been, what does it mean to be faithful in public things? That led me to this city. I went to GW and led me on a crazy path that I'm on that I couldn't have anticipated. I met I won't tell the full story here, but I met then-Senator Barack Obama in the lobby of the Washington Hilton Hotel about three days before he was going to announce he was running for president. Um, I told him I wanted to work for him, and 10 months later, I was in Iowa. And from Iowa to Chicago um, to... Uh, working on his inaugural. Um, that was the first job that I got paid for. I highly recommend getting paid for uh, the work you do if you can. Uh, and then at the White House and uh, and the campaign, as Bill mentioned. Um, I'll just say I two things I understood pretty early on. So I came to faith that around 2003, 2004, it was at a moment when uh, it seemed like um, sort of the kind of a very similar moment to now, where sort of the religious right influence was being very like uh, it was a subject of great intrigue and uh, it was very like, who are these people? Uh, evangelicals were very much sort of um, becoming a boogeyman in media, and of course, this was at the time when I was just starting to go to non-denominational evangelicals. I loved evangelicals. I'm like, these people are fantastic. They showed me Jesus. Like, why is everyone so down on these people that I'm just starting to um, uh, identify with? Um, And so I kind of understood two things about politics and faith. The first was that politics was affecting faith, not just the other way around. I think the impulse we have, what what we hope would be the case, is that people are bringing their faith to their politics. What I understood really early on was that people were also bringing their politics to their faith in a way that's mostly unhealthy. The second thing was I knew that I was never going to feel comfortable in politics again. I had sort of loose political views as a civically interested ninth grader, 10th grader. Uh, When I became a Christian, I thought, well, gosh, this changes everything, including how I view politics. And my categories were all scrambled. It didn't make any sense anymore to sort of take my marching orders from a political party or a political leader. I just wanted to do what Jesus was asking of me. I wanted to consult with Scripture. So I served in the White House, and uh, sort of that sent me on a road, and uh, I left the White House in 2013, and since I left formally working for the president, as I've traveled the country over the last few years, I've become increasingly concerned about what politics is doing to our communities, our relationships, and our souls, and that's primarily what I want to talk to you about tonight. Religion and politics are the two topics you're not supposed to discuss at the dinner table, so the saying goes. Uh, But have you ever stopped to ask yourself why this is? It wasn't until recently that I came to think that the saying is generally true, but for opposing reasons. People don't want to talk about politics because they hold their views too tightly. Too much of their identity is staked in politics. People don't want to talk about religion because they are haunted by the idea that they do not stake their lives in the spiritual things enough, that God takes up too little space in their life. In his essay, Membership, C.S. Lewis writes, a sick society must think much about politics as a sick man must think much about his digestion. However, if either comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind, if either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else, then what was undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease. As I've traveled and been able to speak with thousands of Christians um, across the country over the last eight years or so, I've come to the conclusion that our culture, those in our churches, and many of our citizens are sick with that new and deadly disease. The American Psychological Association found that 52% of Americans felt additional stress due to the, uh, the last presidential election. They called it election stress disorder, and the APA recommended steps people could take for relief. Teachers reported that students were fearful about the election outcome, even to the extent that they were having nightmares about it. In a follow-up study from the APA, the numbers jumped, showing that the number of Americans who, show, who, view the fu- uh, who view the future of the country as a significant stressor had jumped to 69%, and those who saw the political climate as a source of stress had jumped to 62%. A 2010 study found that, quote, societal shifts in political dominance can impact biological stress responses in voters whose political party becomes sociopolitically subordinate. Just, uh, uh, Just last year, a new study was released which showed nearly two out of every five Americans say politics is stressing them out, and one in five are sleepless or have had friendships damaged over politics. Political campaigns understand and feed into this emotional pull of politics. Increasingly, political messages are not about policies. Instead, the policies proposed on the campaign trail are about sending a message and propping up a desired narrative. Our politics is both driven by and guiding our emotions. Uh, Patrick Miller at Duke offered an important corrective to conventional wisdom on emotion and politics in his 2011 paper, which showed that it is not just or even primarily low-information disengaged voters who allow emotion emotion to guide their politics, but principally, it's citizens with high political sophistication who believe they're they're really in the know who are guided by emotion uh, when it comes to politics. The influence of political tactics is not confined to campaign dynamics. It affects how we are formed as people. Political polarization, according to some recent studies, is at an all time high. Instead of our values influencing our politics, our political circumstances are shaping our values. As partisans, we explain away the flaws of the candidate we support and buy nearly any outlandish theory about the candidate we oppose. We even change what we believe to fit the moment. We're all now aware of the research that shows how political polarization is no longer a province of D.C., of the Beltway, of those who are directly in the political fray, but it's seeped out into the broader public. Political identity is now reflected in our friendships, our romantic lives, where we live and the media we consume. Uh, In Bill Bishop's book, The Big Sort, he contends that Americans are increasingly geographically segregated, that we choose to live near people who think the way we do. Over the last 50 years, we have seen an 800% increase in the percentage of Americans who would be upset if their child married someone who belonged to a different political party than they do. In 1960, only 5% of Americans felt this way. In 2010, 40% of Americans said they would be deeply upset. Think about what that means. Politics is causing great emotional and spiritual harm in Americans' lives, and a big reason for that is Americans are going to politics to have their spiritual needs met. This is the meaning of rising polarization. It's the cause of our zero-sum mentality. Politics does a poor job of meeting spiritual needs, but if it will get your vote, politicians will attempt to fill the spiritual void nonetheless. Our politics can only cause such spiritual harm because our national life has become so spiritually vacuous. What we must recognize if we are to properly diagnose and treat that which ails our politics is that the state of our politics is a reflection of the state of our souls that politicians can only manipulate those most personal parts of ourselves, our longings, our loves, our hurts, our passions, and our hatreds for their purposes because we make those things available for their use. The problem is not that we take politics too seriously, but that we take politics seriously in all of the wrong ways. And of course, Christians have been as complicit as anyone else in the state of our politics. We need to come to grips with the fact that the state of our politics, again, is in the end a reflection of the state of our souls, not just those on the outside, a reflection of who we are, the kind of people we are. And for Christians, the problem is not so much that there are broad swaths of Christians who make exceptionally bad contributions to our politics, but rather that for many, there is nothing exceptional about our politics at all. We are so often driven by the same self-interested self-protecting motives as other voters. We are so often prone to the same partisan rationalizations, same politics of contempt as our political opponents, whoever they are. And so a reasonable question to ask then, a question many Christians are asking is why should we even care about politics? Knowing that politics has the risk of exposing such weaknesses in us, knowing that politics has the capacity for causing such harm, isn't withdrawal the best option. And, you know, you, you might think, well, we're in D.C., probably no one's thinking that way. We all sort of get it. That, that actually hasn't been my experience. Um, I had a friend, David Quo, who basically served in the role I had in the Bush administration. He wrote a book called Tempting Faith that was about his experience there. David got a brain tumor um, and, and passed um, years ago. Um, David thought politics was important even as he got disenchanted. Uh, but, but even David, who had been in the mix, who had been there, um, like I said, got disenchanted. He actually concluded his book with a proposal that Christians take a break from politics. I, I only say that to say... Um, those of us closest to politics are not immune uh, from cynicism and withdrawal. That there are people in your church who are asking questions and maybe some of you, maybe me at times, who are thinking um, maybe this really isn't worth it. We can draw on many places in Scripture and in the Christian tradition that would help us understand how our faith pushes us toward the public But I just want to talk briefly about Jeremiah's message to the exiles. These people, God's people, found themselves in a land that was not their own among a people who despised them. And yet Jeremiah's prophecy to them did not suggest that they lie low or that they take a posture of opposition toward the Babylonians. No, instead they are instructed to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. For Christians, one inescapable conclusion of this extraordinary command is that we are obliged to work for the benefit and flourishing of all people, whether or not they see the world as we do or agree with us in any way. A Christian's obligation is not to their tribe, but to their God, a God who cares deeply for all people. And if a Christian's political ideas and actions are not intended toward the good of their enemies— Their political witness is not Christian in its character. When it is, everybody benefits. Christians care about politics because we care about our neighbors and our communities, and political decisions impact our neighbor's well-being. As a citizen, you do not choose to have political influence, you already have it. Therefore, sitting out of politics does not absolve you of blame for the state of our politics. Your sitting out is your choice about how to steward the responsibility you have been given. Faithfulness is not confined to any one sphere of life. It may look different in different arenas, but faithfulness is for all of life, including the political. A holistic pursuit of justice and the well-being of our neighbors is inconceivable in this time, in this place, in this country, in this context, without political involvement. Politics is one of the essential forms in which we can love our neighbor. So what I want to do is begin to stoke in us an imagination for what our politics would look like if Christians were more Christian in politics. How might we think about politics differently if we participated in politics grounded in a confidence that Jesus actually has something worthwhile to offer us in that endeavor? I've spoken about polarization already, but I wanna add a few thoughts about party identity and how it feeds polarization. Because our parties are so polarized and party identity is so profound a cultural force, we find that politicians and political parties have inordinate influence over the views of the citizenry. We have not invested such meaning into what a political party is and what it means to affiliate with one because of the nature of a political party but because of what is in the interest of political parties and other political actors who benefit from them. That is to say, political parties demand our allegiance not because it is their right, but because it is in their interest. We should be members of a political party because we believe things. We should not believe things because we are members of a political party. Part of the reason our politics is in its current state is that we are in a vicious feedback loop of a citizenry that makes itself available for and incentivizes political tactics that degrade people and degrade our politics. And this leads to a normalization or an embeddedness of these kinds of political tactics and approaches. The question then is how do we break the circuit? And are there viable examples of civic activity that can expand our political and moral imaginations and influence what citizens expect of their politics? There's one moment during the 2012 campaign, believe it or not, that remains a high point for me, and a reminder that our politics can create good culture, not just division and insecurity. Uh, My friend Jenna Lee Nardella is something of a wonderkin. Uh, At age 22, she co-founded and served as the executive director of Bloodwater Mission, a nonprofit that has raised more than uh, $25 million. Bloodwater has brought water to more than a million people in Africa and provided health care for more than 62,000 people in HIV-affected areas. Uh, Jenna's influence and example has had an outsized impact on the justice conversation in the American church. The Democratic Convention, as we know, uh, uh, lasts uh, four days, and so as f- uh, faith outreach director on that campaign, I had uh, eight slots to fill for the invocation and benediction each night, and I asked Jenna Lee to serve in one of them. Uh, for an evangelical Christian, the decision to speak in, uh, at an event like that cannot be taken lightly. And the last thing you want to do is get involved in a controversy That could harm your ministry, either from anti-religious inquiry or from a donor base that's upset that you would pray with Democrats. Uh, Jenna asked for a bit of time to consider the invitation, uh, during which she prayed, consulted with her board and her husband, and uh, they encouraged her to take the opportunity, and so Jenna accepted. Uh, I smiled when I received an email from a campaign staffer, uh, uh, a colleague of mine who had flagged that. Uh, who had flagged something in Jenna's prepared benediction, she included a prayer for Mitt Romney too. I assured the staffer that this would be okay and that, well, it was too late to negotiate an alternative. And so on the night of the convention, directly following First Lady Michelle Obama, Jenna walked out and with heads bowed and eyes prayed, she led a stadium full of Democrats in praying for Barack Obama and Mitt Romney and for our nation. The prayer was a ray of light in what was a pretty depressing campaign season. Christians and others shared the video of Jenna's prayer online as an example of what can happen when we hold our faith and each other's dignity as more sacred than partisan politics. And in an increasingly polarized politics and culture, this is a powerful posture that we can take too. We can take risks in the political arena to affirm that some things are more foundational than partisan politics. And when we see others do so, we can support them as they face people who do not understand. What Jenna taught us that evening was that politics can be about more than winning. Uh, Here's another example of how a biblical imagination might motivate real change from the grassroots up. When the apostle Paul was writing to the Galatians, he was addressing a community that was in deep disunity. Uh, Paul had helped Uh, form them through his teachings, but they were straying from their foundational commitments. Sin, false teachers, and parochial motives and interests were creating well polarization. In Galatians, Paul is writing to a deeply polarized community, and it is into this environment. You know, I I think we think, uh, sort of in very practical ways. Well, what do you do with a polarized community? What do you do in a in a politically diverse church? And sort of the ideas that come to my mind as I kind of think, like, just kind of practically, what would I recommend? And, you know, I can think of power-sharing agreements, kind of let, you know, uh, this side could take, uh, could decide what we're, what we're eating or what we're singing on Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday, and the others can take it the other days, or uh, try and draw a line in the middle of the room, and, you know, like two uh, siblings, like, just don't cross the line and everything will be Okay. And you read this and you think, well, what is is Paul going to do? What is Paul going to speak into this divided, polarized community where everyone thinks they're right, where everyone has their own kind of leaders and the people they're following? And it's into this environment that Paul instructs them to do something radical, something completely contrary to everything polarization promotes. He tells them they ought to carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the love of Christ no power sharing, no sort of like, let's just keep the peace here. He says, you're members of the body of Christ. Bear another's burden. His command shows no favoritism. His call is not to one group only, to those with power or without it, or even solely to the strong strong or the weak. Everyone together is part of a community, is children of the same God, And therefore, they ought to carry one another's burdens. A nation is a different sort of community, but it is a community. The call to carry another's burden is an extraordinary one, but these are extraordinary times. In our increasingly polarized nation, when many elected officials and their strategists believe they need to listen only to those who already agree with them, we must carry our neighbor's burdens into politics with our own. We should ensure those we disagree with are heard as well. There are some structural reforms that we could talk about that some of you may be familiar with. Uh, a ranked voting, which I think is something we should look at, multi member districts, which is something that Lee Drutman has challenged. But structural changes like this require a citizen reformed to desire an inclusive democracy and representation. In other words, we could talk all day about campaign finance reform and all all this stuff. At the end of the day, like the harsh truth, again, is that our politics looks the way it does because at the base level, that's the way we want it. That's the really hard thing we have to come to terms with as individuals, especially as individuals where it's so easy to just say, oh, what are those bums doing? Aren't they just awful? No, they're, they're there because we put them there. From what resources can we draw from to support something like that? Here we get to matters not principally about civic character, but even more deeply about spiritual character, about spiritual formation. We need to become the kind of people our politics needs. And all of what I've suggested today is drawn from my conviction that the gospel is real. And that there are resources made available to us by God that we can draw on today, not just for the personal and the private, but for the public as well. Let me kind of close with this. Um, Dallas Willard, who I'm going to be talking about in a more extended way in my next talk, has meant a great deal to me. Uh, he defines joy as a pervasive and constant sense of well-being joy, a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. In my events over the last few years, I've been asking groups, uh, how much of our public dialogue has been filled with a pervasive and constant sense of well-being, would you say? I don't know if you caught any of the conventions over the last couple of weeks. Did did you get a sense of a pervasive and constant sense of well-being from those political conventions? Uh, yeah, Yeah. It's a laugh line. I've been thinking a lot about the 23rd Psalm lately. I'd always kind of associated the psalm with formal services and kitschy backdrops. It was a psalm maybe for quiet moments, peaceful reflection, something to take on retreat or put in a frame for a corner of the living room. This is to miss its meaning. The 23rd Psalm is not just for the backdrop of our lives or a reminder in the moments when we finally catch our breath. No, this Psalm is meant for when we are in the very thick of life, the very moment of crisis. David, of course, was not someone who lived a simple life. He was a warrior and a king. He led armies and slayed giants. He faced major trials, many of his own making. And it is with his enemies before him, the walls closing in, that David finds peace and that David finds joy. And this is because David knew and trusted the shepherd. Today, the same God who led David beside still waters and who prepared a table for him in the midst of his trial, that God is alive and well today. And if you have cast your lot with Jesus, he says that we can abide in him and he will take care of our needs. And if David can find security in God as others plot his demise, surely we can trust Jesus in our circumstances, personal and political. This doesn't mean that we ignore reality. Uh, The current um, pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church uh, where King served as pastor, says it takes a tough mind and tender heart to hold on to hope. And he's drawing on King directly there. Hope is not a cute way to obfuscate our circumstances. Hope clarifies them. This is the great relief of the psalm that David is able to acknowledge that he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, but God meets him right there in the mess with blessing and anointing and comfort. One of my favorite passages of scripture, Jesus says this this amazing thing, just blew me away one day. Uh, If you love me, you will obey my teachings and my father will love you and we will come to you and make our home with you incredible promise of scripture. This is a time when many Christians feel politically homeless, and I understand that feeling. I feel it too. But the crisis for Christians is not that we are politically homeless. The crisis is that we ever thought we could make our home in politics at all. Our home is with him who has made his home in us, and our hope is in the kingdom that is right at hand. If we find ourselves in Babylon, let's make sure we don't find ourselves becoming Babylonians. That's the warning in Jeremiah. Not these people are coming out to get you, but be careful, you may become like these people. The time for self-serving parochialism is over. The time for looking at politics for self-affirmation and cultural expression has long passed. Christians go to politics to advance justice and affirm dignity. We get our spiritual needs met elsewhere. It is time for Christians to stop looking to politics for hope and to start carrying kingdom hope into politics with us out of love of God and for the good of our neighbors. Thank you.